Someone has said, many believe in salvation by grace, but to them, grace is not grace. When I ask them to spell grace, they spell it this way, W-O-R-K-S. Even when talking about grace, we can really live with a works-based, performance-based attitude. It seems that Jesus' disciples, his closest followers and friends while he was ministering in the world, struggled with this reality as well. Last week, we reviewed Jesus' encounter with the rich young fool and the conversation that ensued afterward between Jesus and his disciples. I want to review some of those details this morning because the parable that Jesus tells, opening Matthew chapter 20, is part of that response to his disciples. Why is Jesus telling this particular parable in Matthew 20? If you'll open your Bibles and glance back at Matthew chapter 19, we can see a rich young man who had approached Jesus with the question, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And then you remember how Jesus responded? He lists off some of the commandments after reminding this man about God's goodness. And he basically asks the man, how have you done at those? And the rich young man claims to have done really, really well. I've kept all of those since I was a little boy. Then Jesus zeroes in on one specific area that this particular man seems to have struggled with, even though he didn't recognize it at the time, it seems, his wealth. He asks Jesus, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him in Matthew 19, 21, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And perhaps you remember his response. He walked away. He rejected that offer. He rejected that requirement, that expectation of Jesus. And he turned away and abandoned Jesus. Then Jesus turns to his disciples who've been watching this conversation and listening to what was being said, and he says to them, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. This was a shocking statement to the disciples because Jesus' disciples, like the Jews of his day, would have assumed that a rich young man was highly qualified to get into the kingdom. His wealth, his youth, his prowess, and as a man in that culture... He would be considered to be among the first to be getting into the kingdom of heaven. Wealth, in their view, would have been seen as a blessing from God, indicating that he's surely prepared to be among the first to get into the kingdom. But Jesus says that it is really, really hard for a guy like that to get into the kingdom. And when they hear this, they ask him, who then can be saved? How can anybody be saved? And Jesus responds basically saying, no, no one. With man, this is impossible. Not just for rich people to get into the kingdom, but for anybody to get into the kingdom. But with God, all things are possible. It's at this point that Peter, as he's listening to Jesus, gets an idea in his head. He saw that rich young ruler approach Jesus And he heard Jesus tell that rich young ruler that you've got to abandon your earthly treasure and follow me. Now Peter thinks, well, isn't that what we've done? We've abandoned our earthly treasures. We weren't rich men necessarily, but we have left everything and followed you. So what are we going to get? And Peter's saying, the very thing you've required from the rich young man, the thing that he refused to do, we've done it. We've met the qualifications, haven't we? So Peter's essentially asking, if the rich young man isn't first in line to get into the kingdom, maybe we are? Are we first? We disciples, we twelve, are we first to get into the kingdom because of what we've done? Jesus answers Peter's question, affirming that there is reward held out for the twelve. Jesus promised, you will sit on twelve thrones judging or ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. You will have a special place of authority in the kingdom. And not only you 12, but everyone who leaves their stuff and follows Jesus will inherit eternal life. But then Jesus adds at the very end of chapter 19, but many who are first will be last and the last first. 
It's almost as if he's saying, yes, you must abandon everything and follow me. But don't think of yourselves as first. Don't think of yourselves as somehow entitled. Jesus tells them that they will be rewarded both now, on earth, and then in the new heavens and new earth. But they mustn't think of themselves as first. That's what the parable is supposed to illustrate. Jesus had said, you apostles will rule uniquely, but your rule is not to be thought of as a special reward for your labors. Everyone who follows me will receive eternal life. But both eternal life and special rewards are given solely by God's grace. That's the major point that I think Jesus is after by telling this story in Matthew 20. This point will be elaborated also after the parable. Immediately after Jesus tells this story, the other two disciples who were closest to Jesus, James and John, accompanied by their mother, approach Jesus, and she will ask Jesus, can my boys have the best seats in the kingdom, the highest authority in the kingdom? Can they sit on your right and on your left? And do you remember what Jesus will tell them? That's not up for the asking. Jesus says, that's not something I can even give. In Matthew 20, 23, he'll say that those positions are reserved already for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. That's not a position you can earn. That's not a position you can ask for. It's a position that's given solely by grace. They apparently didn't get the point of the parable. Surprise, surprise. So we're in good company if we struggle with this idea of God's grace and how it really covers all of our existence as Christians. All of our lives are covered by God's grace. Jesus tells this parable in Matthew 20. It's had lots of different titles over the years, but I'm going to call it the parable of the good employer and the envious workers. The parable of the good employer and the envious workers. Jesus tells this story to address the issue on the table at the end of Matthew 19. Let's read through the passage. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. Actually, let's start in verse 30 of Matthew 19. Get a running start here. Matthew 19, 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those heard first came, those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. So let's set the stage for the parable here. What's the situation being painted here in the story? The parable is a comparison between the kingdom of heaven and some earthly situation. The parable is not exactly like the kingdom of heaven... But there's some key pieces of the story that illustrate specific realities of the kingdom of heaven. But we can't overlap them as though they were equal. We have to see what the primary point is. So what's the primary comparison being made? Let's zoom in on the main characters, the good employer 
and the laborers who were hired first. They're the ones who have the most conversation in the story. They're the ones that we learn the most about in the story. Jesus is telling this parable as a warning to his disciples who have a certain mindset that he needs to correct. And that mindset is illustrated by Peter saying, look what we've done. What are we going to get for that? This story is meant to correct the attitude reflected in that statement. The story is about day laborers in the ancient world. These day laborers are standing out on the street corner needing work. And they're anticipating that someone will pick them up and take them somewhere to do some kind of manual labor. And they'll get paid for their work on that day. These people need the work. They're hoping to get enough income to put food on the table for tomorrow for their family. So if they don't get work today, their family may well go hungry tomorrow. It's perhaps fitting that we're looking at this on Labor Day weekend. Our nation is celebrating the importance of work or labor. But the conflicts that surrounded the formation of such a holiday can serve as an interesting backdrop for the message from this parable this morning. Questions about the conditions of work in this country in the 19th century after the Civil War and about evaluating the contributions of work toward the well-being of this society could be mirrored when thinking about our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. How should we think about our work for the Lord as Christians? What is the relationship between our work for the Lord and His grace? These are aspects of the issue that the parable is addressing. So as Jesus tells the story, this employer goes out to hire workers for his vineyard. It's time to pluck the grapes and get them ready for harvest. It's harvest time, and they're going to be looking at a 12-hour workday. So the workers are going out at 6 o'clock in the morning, and they'll get done at 6 o'clock in the evening. They'd have a break in the middle of the day, but they'd be working essentially from sunup to sundown. So the employer hires the first group of workers, and he makes an agreement with them. He essentially sets up a contract. You're going to work for 12 hours, and I'm going to pay you one denarius. It's a single coin for a single day's work. And the workers say, yes, that sounds good. We'll take it. Let's do it. So they go to the vineyard, and they start working. Then three hours later, the employer goes back to the marketplace, and he finds other people standing there, and he hires them to work in his vineyard. In fact, the employer repeats this every three hours throughout the day. This raises some questions. Why is he hiring more and more workers throughout the day? Is it because he didn't really anticipate the needs of his vineyard? Or he didn't really know how much work was going to need to get done that day? As they progressed, did he see the workers weren't making as much progress as he thought they should be, and so he went to hire more? Or could it be that he's hiring these workers because they need work? Is he going out to the marketplace because he needs them or because they need work? They need what he can provide. The emphasis in the story, as we will see in just a bit, is on the generosity, the goodness of this employer. That suggests to me that he's not going out there because he needs to. After all, at 5 o'clock, there's only one more hour of work to do. How much can they really be expected to accomplish? As one writer puts it, the kingdom of heaven is not about getting someone sweat, but about giving someone bread. With only one hour left until quitting time, he has the final group of workers. He asks them, why are you still here, standing idle at the end of the day? And they answer, because nobody hired us. Why didn't anyone hire them? Could be because they were lazy. Maybe they weren't really trying. Maybe they actually hadn't been there all day. Or maybe it was because they were not desirable in some fashion. Maybe they looked weak. Or perhaps other employers came out to the marketplace and looked at this group of folks and said, you know, I don't think you could do the job I need you to do. But this employer comes out at the very end of the day and he says to them, you go into my vineyard too. Now, with all the workers throughout the day, not the first hired workers, but everybody else, the employer does not tell them what he's going to pay them. He had told the first workers, I'll give you a denarius if you work 12 hours. But to the rest of the workers, he simply says, I will give you what is right, 
what is just. Now, try to put yourself in the shoes of the last hired workers for just a moment. What would you expect to receive? Assuming that you know what he agreed to pay the first workers, what would your expectation be? I think you'd expect that he's going to pay you the proper proportion of a denarius. So if one denarius is what he's going to pay the first workers for 12 hours of labor, then you could think of an hour of work being worth one-twelfth of a denarius. So these other workers come in, and if they think through this, after they, they work three hours less, so the next hired workers, they work three hours less than a full day, they should expect when he says, I'm going to give you what is right, that they'll receive nine-twelfths of a denarius, or three-quarters of a denarius. The guys hired at noon could expect to get half a denarius for their labor, and on down it goes. However, I suspect that they don't know how much he agreed to pay the first workers. I don't imagine they need that information. So that means they've really got to trust the character of the employer. They've got to take him at his word when he says, I'll give you what is right. If they need funds, income to feed their family, they've got to bank on this man's word that he's going to give them enough to feed their family for the next day. And so if they're going to get less than a denarius, that might not be enough. And yet, they've still got to just trust the word of the employer that he's going to do what is right. Once they finish the workday in the story, the tension builds. This is where the story gets a bit strange when compared with a real-life day laborer situation. And the strangeness would initially make the original hearers wonder about the character of the employer. Is this a good guy or not? The workday's over. The work is done. Now the employer calls all the workers in, all together, all at once, to come receive their payment in front of everybody else. They're going to line up, and the employer tells the foreman, you should pay the guys hired at 5 o'clock first. Try to view what happens next through the eyes of the workers who were hired first. They've worked 12 hours that day, and I suspect they're not going to think very positively about the fact that these guys who worked only one hour are getting paid the same amount as they are. They're not going to like that very much. But this is precisely where the point of the parable comes through. This employer did this on purpose. He wants the workers who were hired first to see this. He's giving them an opportunity to respond appropriately. But they're not going to. So he knows that they're going to see this, and he knows that they might not like it very much. The employer instructs the foreman to give a denarius to those who only worked one hour of the day. So as the first workers hired witness that, they begin to do some calculations of their own. They begin to think, well, if if they got one denarius, and he agreed to pay us one denarius, and they only worked one-twelfth of the time we worked, perhaps we're going to get 12 denarii, a massive payday. But when they receive one denarius as well, They are upset. They think that they deserve more. So they have this conversation with him. They complain out loud to his face. They grumble to him about their unfair treatment. Look at verse 13 again. When we read the way the employer addresses one of the representatives of the workers hired first, he addresses him as friend. Now when we read that in English... We tend to think that's an intimate term. That's a companionship term. The employer is respectfully putting this worker on an equal level with him. He's speaking very kindly to him. However, the Greek word used here is not the normal word for friend. It doesn't tend to communicate all those wonderful, sweet, warm ideas we associate with friendship. It's a word that we really don't have a good English equivalent for. We could use the English word friend, but we need to say it with a certain tone to get the idea across. It's the way you would address someone that you've done something really nice for, but they respond with ingratitude, and you think you need to deal with that with them. 
So you might say something like, hey, pal, with a little bump in your voice, a little agitation. The Greek word is used to create some distance, which is kind of the opposite of the way we think about the word friend. It creates distance. And we'll see this word again in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus will use it to address Judas when he approaches Jesus to turn him over to the authorities. There, too, the idea is, I've done a lot of good for you, Judas, and you are spurning that. You are responding very terribly in this moment. It's got that element of rebuke in it that we don't see when we use the word friend here. So the employer is looking at these workers he hired first, and he's saying, I've done good to you, and you're not responding well, buddy. I haven't done anything wrong to you. This was our agreement, so I'm giving you exactly what I told you I would. And then the rest of the conversation unfolds to help us see that this is exactly the way Peter was thinking. And the rest of the disciples are in danger of thinking this way too. They've got this mentality that pushes them away from seeing Jesus and seeing God ultimately as this gracious, the -the over-the-top good God who cares for them and wants to provide their needs. They don't see Him like that right now. What were the disciples supposed to learn from this story? What are we supposed to learn from this story? There are two sets of points to make. We need to learn certain things about the employer, and we need to learn certain things about these envious workers. So first, who's the good employer? The good employer represents God. So what do we learn about God from this story? At least four things. We'll move through these pretty quickly. First, we learn about God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. He gives what He promises. That's how He treated the first workers. He told them, I'm going to pay you one denarius, and He pays them one denarius. So we learn that God gives what He promises. He is faithful. Secondly, we learn about God's righteousness or His justice. When He went out and hired the rest of the day's workers, He said to them, I will give you what is right. Or it could be translated, I give you what is just. I will give you what is just. Now, they may not have known exactly what to expect, what that would look like at the end of the day, but his promise was to give them what he deemed to be right. They were required to trust his word. God always does what is right, always, in every situation, every reality, from now into eternity. God always and only does what is right. Now, if that were all that we learned from, about God from this parable, that might not be a very comforting idea. God is faithful and God is just. Well, He's promised to judge sinners. If that's what I am, that might not be so great. God is faithful to His promises to judge and punish sin. Oh, goody. If I'm in the position of a guilty sinner... Him being faithful and Him being just by itself is not necessarily good news. However, those two lessons about God are in the background of the parable. The main lesson that the parable teaches about God is that He is good and gracious, generous. God's goodness needs to color how we view His faithfulness and His righteousness. The generosity of the employer... The goodness of God is seen at several points in the parable. First, we see it as he hires these workers at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. With only one hour left to work, if we recognize the background that these day laborers need the work, if we recognize that that's why they're there, so they can provide for their families, then we can see that the employer is doing them a favor by hiring them. He would even be doing them a favor if he only paid them one-twelfth of a denarius. Otherwise, they were not going to be hired. They were not going to receive any income for the day. And their family would be left without work, without income to buy food. But this generous employer agrees to give them work to do and then pay them for it. Pay them what is right for it. What he decides is right for it. Then, when we see the payout at the end of the day, we discover that he gives way beyond what was earned. His goodness goes beyond even what he's already said. 
He gives way more than what was earned. He gives the denarius, a full day's wage, even to those who didn't work a full day. What he agreed to pay the workers who worked all day long, he gives also to the guys who only worked one hour. He gives them way beyond what they earned. Pastor Doug O'Donnell writes, The Lord of this vineyard has broken the first rule of all economics. The more work, the more pay. And indeed, that's where his generosity is on display. It's not about earning. It's about his generosity. His concern seems to be that he wants to meet the needs of these men and their families. He is generous. And that's what comes out in the conversation at the end, too. When he's talking, we don't learn about the response of the 11th hour workers. We don't know how they responded when they received a denarius. Perhaps you can imagine how overjoyed and how grateful they would be. But Jesus doesn't draw any attention to that. It's not part of the lesson he's driving home here. He focuses on the guys he hired first. And that's where the point of the parable really comes through. The employer dialogues with the workers hired first explaining to them what's wrong with them. Look at the very end of verse 15. You might see something a bit different in your Bible, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But the ESV says, Or do you begrudge my generosity? Literally, we could translate it as, Is your eye evil because I am good? Is your eye evil because I am good? There's a figure of speech here, the evil eye, that we'll talk about more. But... The point here, first and foremost, is that the employer is basically saying, I am good and you don't like it. You have not responded well to the reality that I am good and that I have been good to other people besides you. Their eye is evil because he is good. They see God's goodness as a bad thing. Nevertheless, Jesus wants us to see God's goodness on display here and respond differently. The fourth thing we learn about God in this parable is about God's freedom. You see it in verses 14 and 15 at the beginning of this conversation with the workers hired first. Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? When we think about freedom, we tend to focus on questions about our own freedom. Philosophical discussions about free will and human rights are not unimportant but we have to keep those concepts in proper theological context. In this case, we need to recognize God's ultimate freedom. He is the freest being in the universe. He has no limitations outside himself. You and I, whatever you think about, whatever we think about our so-called free will, we have limitations, right? We can't do everything that we want to do. We have limitations that God does not have. And so he is free in a way that transcends whatever freedom human beings might have. This parable emphasizes that point. God does what he chooses to do. Period. End of story. When he wants to do something, when he intends to act in a certain way, you can't stop him. Nothing can and no one can. That's emphasized throughout the scriptures, and it's on display in this parable. He is free, and he is especially free to dispense his grace however he sees fit. We ought to talk about God's freedom and rejoice in God's freedom far more than we talk about, our, talk about or rejoice in our own freedom or our own perceived rights. God has all the rights in the universe. But very often, we are tempted to respond to this truth like the workers hired first in this parable. This is the warning that's coming across to the disciples. They are thinking like these workers hired first. And you and I can slip into such a mindset as well. Jesus is telling this parable to correct this, to pull us back from a bad attitude and a bad way of relating to God. So as we think about these envious workers now, let's consider three traps that we can fall into. And all three of these traps, the disciples were falling into right at this moment in the Gospel of Matthew. We need to beware of these traps as well. Jesus tells this parable to warn us. And he warns us because he loves us. 
Jesus doesn't want us to suffer from this delusional mindset and this broken mindset. He wants us to approach God better. He doesn't want us to approach God in ways that are harmful for us. If you relate to God the way that these first workers do, you're not relating to God very well, and you're in danger of missing Him entirely. So who are these envious workers? What do we learn about them? First, we learn about their entitlement. They've fallen into the entitlement trap. You can see this in verse 10. After they've seen the employer be incredibly generous, incredibly gracious to these other workers, they grumbled. They thought they would receive more. They thought that because they had worked more, they deserved more. They felt entitled. This is what we see with Peter and the disciples. After they saw the rich young ruler go away, rejecting Jesus' instruction, abandon your wealth, sell it, give it to the poor, follow me. What did Peter say? Well, we've done all that, so we're good, right? We've done what's required, so we should get what you're promising. What are we going to get because of what we've done? Peter and the disciples have fallen into the entitlement trap, and we can too. Thinking goes like this. We start thinking, because of what I've done, I deserve blessing. I deserve good from God. This is the air we breathe in our society. This country, in many ways, is built on a sense of entitlement. That's not necessarily to say anything critical about the founding of our nation, but the entitlement idea that we have rights and we should fight for them is very much at the foundation of our society's way of thinking and always has been. It's been a strong motivator in this country. But if we relate to God on the basis of entitlement, we're going to find ourselves perpetually disappointed. And we're going to find out that we don't really understand our rights very well before a God who owns everything in the universe. So we need to pull back from this sense of entitlement as Christians. We need to get rid of thinking in ways that focus on what we've done. This kind of mindset that says things like this. I read my Bible for hours the other day, so therefore, therefore, God must surely bless me. I served in the nursery. All those times I sacrificed my own time to give to others. I deserve good from God because of that. I deserve for my family to be in good health. I deserve for God to bless me with wealth and prosperity because I've worked so hard. Surely I deserve. No. You're going to have to find another God because the one true God, the only God who actually exists, doesn't work that way. He doesn't give us that option. He doesn't call us to work for Him in order to earn from Him. He doesn't call us to work for Him in order to earn from Him. Get that. This is where we can make a major mistake. When we read this parable and we recognize that God is being compared with an employer, we conclude, therefore, our relationship with God needs to look like an employment relationship. That's to push the parable too far. There's something true about this employer that applies to God, but God is not merely an employer. We're not just His employees or His workers. There is a truth in that, but if that's all we see in our relationship with God, we're going to run into trouble. We dare not narrow our understanding of who God is and how to relate to Him in terms of an employer-employee relationship. We do work for God, but we earn nothing by our works not salvation, and not rewards. Secondly, we can see that these envious workers have a merit mentality. This is the flip side of the sense of entitlement. This is to fall into the performance trap. The performance trap. So if the entitlement trap says, I work more, therefore I deserve more, the corollary of that is, I work more, therefore God owes me more. So we can see both sides of the relationship in view here. These workers felt like the employer owed them more. We see this in verse 11 where they grumble at him because of what he's given to the others. And he doesn't give to them what they think they deserve. They think he owes them more. Surely they must think something like this. He owes us 12 denarii because he paid these guys who only worked one hour 
One denarius. After Peter saw the interaction between Jesus and the rich young ruler, he says, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? We've done exactly what you told the rich young ruler to do, so what are you going to give to us? What do you owe us for that? What's the proper reward for that? A pastor by the name of Tommy Boland says that Peter was mentally adding up everything he had done for the Lord and asked what he would get in return. I think we can go there too. We can fall into this trap where we start listing off our resume and counting up all the things that we've done for God and for other people, and then we conclude, surely God owes me more than He's given me already. This merit mentality can create what we might call the daily scorecard. Pastor Tommy Bolin explains it this way, if we have more merits at the end of the day, we anticipate God's blessings. If we have more demerits at the end of the day, we expect God's cursing. Now, maybe for Pastor Bolin, this happens at the end of the day, preventing him from sleeping at night. But for me, this more commonly happens first thing in the morning. As I get up groggily, turned off the alarm, making my way to the shower, I begin rehearsing the things that happened yesterday. And I'm remembering particular ways that I failed, the ways that I spoke harshly to my wife, or ways that I thought really awfully about somebody else, or the ways that I dismissed my daughter. Or I might suddenly remember how I didn't do something I was supposed to do. So my failures plague me first thing in the morning. And at that moment, there's a temptation for me to let those thoughts of failure shape my expectations for today. I start dreading what terrible things are going to happen to me today because I screwed up so bad yesterday. Can anybody relate to that? It could go the other way too, couldn't it? Maybe yesterday was an amazing day. Maybe it was one of those rare days where I read my Bible for an hour uninterrupted. Maybe it was one of those days where I prayed constantly throughout the day. Surely that must mean that today, God is going to bring amazing and unexpected blessings to my life. Folks, I hope you know this. Life is not so formulaic. The Bible doesn't give us that expectation that life is going to be like a formula. You do good things and so God blesses you. You do bad things, so God is going to curse you, punish you. And to chase a rabbit for a moment, there's a fine line that we have to have in our thinking as Christians between punishment and discipline. We should recoil from fearing that God is going to punish us because of the bad things that we do from day to day. That's the very thing that Jesus is death and resurrection has eliminated from our lives. But God does discipline us when we stray, and that is often a painful experience. But it's always for our good. Here's the thing I want you to get. If you didn't get anything else out of this part of the message, here's what I want you to get. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, somebody for whom Jesus has paid for all of your sins, all of your failures, you live every day all day, forever and ever, under the blessing of God. There is no more curse. There is no more punishment. There is no more wrath. Jesus took all of that away. So even when you experience corrective discipline, even when you experience pain and loss in your life, God is doing something good to you and for you. He is Blessing you, moment by moment, day by day, forever and ever. Because Jesus has taken away all sense of wrath from God and punishment from God, this mentality that ties our working to God's blessing or God's cursing needs to be eradicated from our thinking. Certainly, There is blessing in obedience. But don't think that the corollary is true. That there's cursing in disobedience. I know I'm running into danger by saying that. Very fine line here. Saying that, okay, you could could hear me say that and say, well, since, since grace is so awesome, let me just sin more. I'll just be disobedient. It doesn't really matter anyway. 
If God's not going to punish me, if God's not going to curse me in my disobedience, then who the heck cares? I'm not saying that. And Paul will chastise you strongly in Romans 6 for thinking that way. So pull yourself back from you, what you think might be that logical conclusion and say, no, my logic is wrong there. God's grace really is that amazing. That when you're in disobedience, when you're in sin, whatever that means, God is still blessing you. You are still His child. That doesn't change. That doesn't break. Even when you fail and even when you sin. That's grace. That's how amazing it is. But don't draw the wrong conclusion from that. I know that it's hard when we think about this performance trap and this connection between works and rewards, works and blessings. I know that it's hard because we live in a society, we live in a world that runs on that operative principle in every other area of our lives. Right? We live that way in our jobs. We perform well, we might get a raise. We perform that way sometimes in our families. Kids do good, they're going to get stars and stickers and snacks. They do bad, they're going to get a spanking or a timeout or some bad thing. Discipline, not punishment. How do we walk that in our parenting? Another message some other time. These are the things that creep into my mind. We live that way in every other area of our life. And so how do we then stop that when we're thinking about our Christian life, our life before the Lord, our life in relationship to Him? The the truth of the matter is, none of us, this guy up here included, really understands God's grace. It is amazing. We can talk about how amazing it is, but we... We're scared, or we just confused. We can't take it as far as the Bible really does take it. However far you take God's grace, you need to take it a little further. We don't grasp how much good God did for us when His Son died on that cross 2,000 years ago. The effects of that 2,000 years ago, the ripple effects of that stream out forever. And it ripples out through our everyday lives. Every day. So we need to abandon the daily scorecard. We need to abandon this merit mentality. Thinking that if we just try harder, if we just work harder, if we just do more good, we'll get the things we want from God. Or we'll get the blessings that we pray for, or He'll save us. That's the performance trap. And we dare not fall into it. Last we learned learned about their envy. Their envy, the jealousy that these first workers felt when they saw the employer paying these other workers who didn't work as much, way out of proportion to what they did. This is the comparison trap. And we've talked about this before. They compared themselves to the other workers and they viewed themselves as better. We see that in verse 12. They said, these last worked only one hour and you, you have made them equal to us. What does that mean? It means that they viewed them as lower, lesser. They're thinking, we worked all day, really hard, and we earned a lot. They only worked a little bit, so they should be down, they should be down here, lower than us. But you have made them equal to us. You've put them up here, right level with us. When these envious workers look at the 11th hour workers, they're thinking, they're not worth much. They don't deserve much. And they are comparing themselves to them. And they're elevating themselves above the others, saying, we are up here, and you have elevated them, and that's not fair. That's not fair. The title of the sermon is Fairness or Grace? Question mark. We need to beware of relating to God on the terms of fairness. And that's what this parable is pushing against. If you want God to treat you fairly, you will find yourself on the road to hell. That's what fair looks like from God's vantage point. And these workers wanted God to treat them and everybody else thoroughly under their understanding of fairness. They compared themselves to other workers. So the reality is that the remedy for this, or the preventive medicine we need, is contentment. Contentment with what God has given to us. It's not really any of our business, at one level, what God has done for other people. At least it's not something that should upset us, 
or disappoint us or frustrate us when God blesses somebody else. The appropriate response is to rejoice with those who rejoice. But we struggle. We see these people getting the very blessings that we want so desperately in our own lives and are not getting. And we're driven with envy and jealousy. We want what they're getting. And we start thinking, well, what did they do to get that? How did they get that from God? What did they do? How can I do that? And we forget that it's just God's grace and God's freedom to give to them as He chooses. The employer in the story asked, Friend, is your eye evil because I'm good? The evil eye often refers to jealousy in the ancient world. It's a metaphor, figure of speech. And it could fit that way in the story here. But at another level, the employer is asking, Is your eye so twisted and so broken that when you see what God is doing in somebody else's life, you don't view it properly. Instead, you view it as this distorted thing. One writer says, Don't you see that the way you're looking at this is twisted and wrong? You are misreading my generosity to others as unfairness to you. And so we need to magnify God's grace here. Magnify it. Think about that image. You take a magnifying glass. I mean, that's the wrong image because God's grace is really huge. We use a magnifying glass to look at something really tiny. So telescope it. Maybe that's it. Telescope so you can see something that's really, really, really big, but really far away, perhaps. We need to think bigger about God's grace for everybody, not just for ourselves. It's not just in our own lives. It can be really hard when other people's lives look so much better than ours, based on what standard, by the way. And it's easy to fall back into those other traps when we do see that going on. Well, maybe the reason I'm not getting those blessings is because I'm, I've done bad things. I'm, I'm sinning. I'm broken. I'm doing something wrong here. That's the reason I'm not getting what I'm asking for, what I've been praying for for years. Or it's because God is punishing me. He's withholding something good from me because I've done something wrong. Isn't that exactly what the serpent led Eve to think in the Garden of Eden? God's holding back all this good from you from this one tree that he doesn't want you to eat from. And we all have a tendency to think that way, to slip into that mindset of thinking, I think. So the conclusion of the matter is this. In our relationship with God, we need to plead for grace. Plead for grace. Don't ask for fairness. Don't ask God to be fair. You know why? You you can't calculate fairness properly because you can't see all the data. For fairness to truly be fair, it has to take account of all the data. And you know who can do that? God alone. You can't even take account of the data in your own life. You don't see everything that's wrong with you or right with you. Our our vision is too limited for that. So don't ask for fairness. God sees everything, all of it, every bit of it. Nothing is hidden from His eye. If you ask Him for fairness, He must act on account of all of that data. So don't ask for fairness. Plead for grace instead. You see it in the Bible, throughout the Psalms and in the prophets, repeatedly, people often prayed, God, give me grace. And when they said that, just using the word grace itself, they were admitting that they deserved something bad. The very definition of the word grace implies ill-deserved, not neutral, It's not just that you don't deserve anything from God. It's not that you're a blank slate. It's that there's ill-deserved. You deserve bad. I deserve bad. We deserve punishment. Every time the word grace is used in the Bible, that's in the background. You need to see it there every single time. The person is admitting, I deserve your wrath. I deserve your punishment. But I am appealing that you would give me grace anyway because that's who you are. You're a God of grace. You're good. You're generous. And so please be generous to me. We don't approach God from a standpoint of debt. God doesn't owe us anything. And He never, ever will. He gives according to His grace. And so it is good for us to ask for grace, to plead for it in our day-to-day lives, and to relate to God on the basis of grace and not fairness. Would you pray with me? Father, You are good God. We confess it. 
you've shown yourself to be good. From creation through redemption and in all of history, you have shown yourself to be a good God. And so we come to you asking for good from you. We trust you as our Father. You have told us what is good. You have told us what is right. You have told us what we can expect from you. You have given us glorious promises. Help us to believe them. Help us to take you at your word, regardless of what our circumstances say. Help us to take you at your word, to trust you. Thank you for showing us your trustworthiness, your faithfulness throughout the scriptures. And even in this parable, we've gotten a glimpse of your goodness, your generosity, your faithfulness, your freedom. And we pray that you would indeed bless us. We ask for it. We ask for it because we're dependent on it. We need you. Just like these workers needed the work provided by the employer, we need you day by day to provide for us. So help us to have the perspective on our lives that everything we have is a gift from you. Everything we have, we have received from your hand as a gift. We earn nothing from you. Help us to see that more clearly and extend the gratitude that we ought to. Thank you for loving us so richly. Thank you for giving us your son. It's only by his death on the cross, it's only through his sacrifice that we can come to you as a father and that we can expect good from you. Without him, we are lost. And so we thank you for saving us through him. It's in his name that we pray.